Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. On July 10th, 1994, 16-year-old Raymond Allen Warren and two friends were walking down Kilmer Street in Dayton, Ohio. A car swerved up and the driver asked them for drugs, but they were not drug dealers. The trio continued on to one of the friends' houses to fix a flat tire on Raymond's motorized scooter. They heard gunshots in the distance behind them. After fixing the flat, Raymond rode back to his grandmother's on Kilmer Street, where he saw that a car had crashed into one of her neighbor's houses. The driver had been fatally shot. A roll of counterfeit bills laid next to him. When questioned by cops on the scene, Raymond told them about the drug solicitation. He was then taken to the station to give a statement. After submitting to a gunshot residue test, he was released. The palm of his non-dominant hand tested positive for two elements associated with gunplay. According to what was considered reliable science at the time, the presence of those elements could mean one of only three things, that Raymond had either fired a gun, handled ammunition, or was the victim of gun violence. This gave police more than enough confidence to coerce the two other children with the threat of their own prosecution to implicate their friend. The same strain of expert testimony presented at his trial had been heard by countless juries for decades, and at least a decade more thereafter, until some startling realizations about the reliability of gunshot residue testing were finally made. This is Wrongful Conviction.
Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today we've got a junk science case out of Ohio, gunshot residue testing case to be exact, but with the information that they had, many people, investigators and law enforcement included, probably thought they had the right guy. Not like some of our other cases where there was still plenty of reasonable doubt or even knowledge to the contrary. And our guest was just a 16-year-old boy at the time. And he joins us now from a correctional facility in Ohio, Raymond Allen Warren. Welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Okay, thank you for having me. And I want to thank everyone there at the Wrongful Conviction podcast. Thank you. You're very welcome. And joining Raymond today is his fierce advocate that our listeners might remember from the gunshot residue episode of Wrongful Conviction Junk Science, in which they actually touched on Raymond's case while discussing the issue at large. We're going to have that episode linked in our bio. I implore you to go and check it out. It's an eye-opener. She is the director of the Wrongful Conviction Project at the Office of the Ohio Public Defender. Joanna Sanchez, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. All right, so Raymond, you've been in prison going on, well, Jesus, I hate to even say this, but you've been in prison for 12 years longer now than you were alive before all of this happened. That's just nuts. But can you tell us a bit about your first 16 years of life before this tragedy? As you said, I was uh, 16 years old. Uh, I primarily grew up in Dayton, Ohio, back and forth from Kentucky as well. I have a lot of family down there, and uh, but we were poor. Um, but I had a good childhood, I would say. Three younger brothers at the time. I have five younger brothers now. Yeah, and I understand you were really into like working on cars and stuff like that. I grew up basically taking stuff apart as a kid, and uh, the older I got, um, I started working on vehicles right before this incarceration, like maybe like a year, year and a half. I had learned to paint cars. So that was something that I was doing on a regular basis. Um, I even started to make a little money at it. And uh, I was, you know, probably considered probably the neighborhood mechanic. Anybody that needed something done to their car, I was there to do it. <laughs> Just a kid trying to figure stuff out. So sounds like you had a lot of stuff, you know, figured out or going the right direction anyway. And you had a talent and a passion for something that could have earned you a good living. So now we get to the fateful day of July 10th, 1994. And there was a scooter you were working on. Was it your scooter or did it belong to one of your friends? Well, the scooter belonged to me. I had a flat tire. It was at my grandmother's house where I was staying. We had to take it to Antonio's house where we basically kept all the tools that we had accumulated. Shantae and Antonio had arrived that evening to help me move it from my grandmother's house to Antonio's house to fix it. Me and um, Shantae were basically pushing the scooter. He was steering it, and I was lifting up the back of the scooter because as it had a flat, you couldn't move it any other way. Antonio was riding alongside the street when a car pulled up. Um, guy in the car asked us, or someone in the car asked us, if we had any drugs. I said, what, nothing happened, and we don't got nothing. Antonio said something, I don't remember exactly what, cursing him out, and they kept going. We continued along our path to Antonio's house. We arrived at the corner of uh, Kilmer and Lakeview when we heard gunshots. We immediately like took off running. We were pushing the scooter and I was lifting up the back of it. Me and Shantae were doing our best to boogie along to get to uh, Antonio's house. And when we arrived at Antonio's house, we basically dropped the scooter. Well, after we realized wasn't anybody shooting at us, we realized it was safe. We started working on the scooter. Right. And specifically, you were fixing a flat tire. The way that the scooter is, is made, you have to take the brakes and the wheel off before you can get to the actual tire, as well as lift the muffler off of the wheel well. It's not like a tire, like a car or something. It's a lot different. You have to really take all everything apart 
on the back of the scooter. So yeah, we were absolutely working with the brake components, a muffler, everything that was attached to that wheel. So at this point, you have no idea what happened back there on Kilmer Street, but just that it was smart to not be anywhere around it. And you were able to fix your flat. Now, before we get into the specifics of the crime itself, I want to turn to Joanna. So, Joanna, one of the things that I found fascinating about some of the issues that you and Josh Dubin discussed on Wrongful Conviction Junk Science was that things like cigarette ash, dried urine, and so many other you know, substances, even household substances, can cause a false positive on a gunshot residue or GSR test. Can you explain how that happens? Sure. So GSR tests don't actually test for a unique substance known as gunshot residue. What they're really testing for are elements that are known to be present in gunshot residue. And the test used in Raymond's case was an atomic absorption test. It's not really used anymore because it has limited utility. But it was testing for two elements, barium and antimony. And those two elements exist in our atmosphere. They're found in things like fireworks, matches, some types of batteries, lubricating greases, and particularly relevant here in brake pad dust. So if somebody's had contact with any of those substances, they potentially could test positive for barium and antimony and give a false positive on a gunshot residue test. Right. So as Raymond just said, and his friends confirmed, so it's undisputed that they had fixed a flat that night, handled the brake pads and other components, but we haven't even gotten to why all of this matters yet. So it turns out that this guy, Wendell Simpson, was driving around Kilmer Street that night, and there may or may not have been a gold Buick either following him or just cruising the area. Now, it's believed that the gunshots heard earlier by Raymond and his friends had killed this guy, Wendell Simpson. His body was found in the front seat of his car, which had crashed into a house, 529 Kilmer Street, just up the block from Raymond's grandmother's house. There was a crowbar on the floor, as well as a roll of counterfeit bills encircled by two real dollar bills on the front seat. Three shells were also recovered from the scene, one on the right rear floorboard, one on the uh, right side of the driver's seat, and another near the left front tire. And it appears that there were some witnesses or perhaps even potential suspects for this crime. So there are two young men who are there at the scene as well. Uh, Andre Wright and Stanley Williams. And what they indicate to the police is that they saw Wendell Simpson's car crashed um, into the house on Kilmer Street. And so they pull their car up and park across the street. They're driving a gold Buick. And what they indicate is that they went to Mr. Simpson's car multiple times, first to put it in park, then to turn off the engine. And they planned to leave the scene, but the police got there before they could. And so they tell the police this story. They tell them that they are just in the neighborhood kind of cruising around that night. The police take them to the station, but they don't fingerprint them. They don't test them for gunshot residue. And then they just let them go. Now, we're not trying to implicate other potentially innocent people here. Of course not. But that interaction is at the very least remarkable, considering what happened to Raymond, who at this time had just fixed a flat tire, went to a nearby gas station, and was heading back to Grandma's house on Kilmer Street. When I arrived at my grandmother's house, there was some kind of commotion at the at the top of the block, and there were police and fire trucks and all kinds of stuff out there. Um, a detective approached me while I was putting a scooter on my, on my grandmother's porch and asked me had I seen anything. I didn't really know what he was talking about. 
he asked me if I could go up the street, see what he was he was talking about. So I walked with him with the scooter up the street. He asked me if I had seen the vehicle. And I said, I don't know. I'm not sure I said a vehicle did drive by us. Um, we were walking to Antonio's. He asked me what was what was I going um, to Ross Waterfist my scooter. And he asked me if I would go downtown with him and uh, give further detail about where I was, who I was with. So I didn't mind. I didn't care. So if anything I could do to help, I absolutely could. They handcuffed me and placed me in the back of a police car. So, okay, you were trying to help, right? And you had already explained where you had been. But maybe it was that you potentially had contact with this vehicle before the shooting. So at this point, you didn't know that you had any reason to be scared. But the handcuffs certainly could have been some kind of indication. So now they take you down to the station. How did that go when you got there? Um, they took me to a room. They took the handcuffs off of me. And I was in there for quite some time. The light was turned off and I started to nod off on the table a little bit when a detective came in the room and started asking me questions. At first, it was, you know, it was just asking me questions about who I was with, where I was, had I seen the vehicle. And like I said, I wasn't for sure that I had seen that particular vehicle, but I told him about the vehicle that had approached. I told him about my friends that I was with, Antonio and Shante, as well as me going to fix the scooter. I didn't really think anything was wrong with it, so just gave the story. I told him exactly where I was at and who I was with. He voluntarily waives his rights. He agrees to give a statement, and he agrees to this gunshot residue test. Why not? I haven't done anything wrong. I had fired no gun. Yeah, I gave a gun test. Right. Since after all, you hadn't fired a gun. You had every reason to be confident that you wouldn't test positive because nobody, I mean, let's not forget, no one at the time understood that these tests could easily result in false positives. So that night, Raymond was released to his grandma and went home thinking, probably thinking he was safe. So the gunshot residue test comes back and they detect antimony and barium on the palm of Raymond's right hand. It's not on the back of his right hand. It's not anywhere on his left hand. It's just on the palm. Raymond is left-handed. So it's on his non-dominant hand that they find these two elements. This is what's weird about this. So it was only on the palm, not on the backside where you might expect it more likely to be. I mean, you can just hold your hand up and mimic a firing uh, motion and you'll see what I'm talking about. And on the non-dominant hand, You would expect it to be on his dominant hand. And the fact that it's not, I think, is indicative that it's contamination, either from the brake pads or potentially because he is handcuffed. He's in a police cruiser. He's taken down to the police station. He's in the interrogation room. Those are all surfaces that we know are contaminated with gunshot residue. So not only had he been working with brake pads that night, there was also tremendous amount of opportunities for touch transfer, which is why it is widely accepted now that GSR testing, or more specifically, the atomic absorption test that was used in this case, is almost entirely meaningless. In fact, the only reasonable use it has is in the scenario where the suspect hasn't had the opportunity to vigorously wash their hands, then are tested, and the absence of the elements associated with gun use could be exculpatory as we've pointed out before on this show. Very different than it being used as an, in an inculpatory manner as it was here. That's what we know now. But back then, with this positive GSR test, Raymond's fate was, I hate to say it, but it was pretty much sealed. 
at that time, they believe that antimony and barium are very unique to gunshot residue. So if somebody tests positive for those elements, the belief is that it means they fired a weapon, they were a victim of a shooting, or they handled ammunition. So those results were in, and the police were like, whoa, we've got our guy here. So you had mentioned Antonio and Shantae in your statement. So the police go to Antonio's home a few weeks after the shooting, multiple police cars, multiple police officers, and they pull up on Antonio. He's in his front yard. Uh, And they say, we want to take you down to the police station to talk to you about this crime. He asks to go tell his parents they're in the house and the police won't let him. So this 14-year-old boy is being escorted to the police station. His parents don't know about it. He gets there. He asks to call his mom. They say no. And what they tell him is that we'll let you go home once you make a statement. And so they interview him for a lengthy period of time, it appears, without recording it. All we have is a recording of the last five to ten minutes of his statement. And what Antonio testifies to at various points during the proceedings, including in in Raymond's juvenile proceedings, is that the police told him they were looking to put this crime on him if he didn't implicate Raymond. And so what he did was he gave a statement. In the recording statement, you can tell that it's practiced. He seems like he's reading a script. At one point, he stops and He's in this little room. He's clearly at least two police officers there. One is sitting right up against him. They're very close to one another. And Antonio is sort of running quickly through what happened this night and at one point stops and looks to somebody off camera and says, oh, I messed up. As we was walking back, going back to home, um, this guy had pulled up. Alan's right behind us. Yeah. Uh, I Before you up. left Alan's house, you drank a pop. So it appears that he's talked to them for a lengthy period of time and then it was told you know, to give this very short statement implicating Raymond. Yeah, and no one really picked up on this flub that illustrates that he was just repeating the story that they had developed. He had been coerced into doing so by the threat of his own wrongful prosecution. And Shante was faced with the same, call it what it is, a Sophie's Choice. Yeah, Shante, they come to his house one morning. It's 6.30 in the morning. He's sleeping. He'd gone to bed late the night before, so he's, he's not on much rest. They take him to the police station, and they tell him the same thing. Where They say, you know, we're, we're looking to talk to you about a murder we think you might have been involved in. And so ultimately what happens is Shante, it's the police actually write out a statement, and that's the statement that Shante signs. He doesn't write it himself. It's not a recorded statement. It's a handwritten statement made by one of the police officers that he signs. And essentially that statement corroborated Antonio's statement. Both were towing the line for this police narrative, which was that while this is the narrative they were putting forth was that while on the way to Antonio's house, this encounter with the victim happened. He asked for drugs. Antonio and Shante kept walking. Raymond allegedly went into an alley with the victim who tried to pay with the counterfeit roll and Raymond allegedly shot him for it. Raymond allegedly then admitted this to Antonio and Jante. So when were you arrested and were you able to bond out? August the 9th, 1994. Um, I was uh, taken into juvenile custody. In juvenile custody, you don't have a bond or anything like that. Which is backwards as hell. And even once bound over to the uh, adult courts, um, the bond that they gave me, um, as I said, I'm we were poor, still poor, and uh, wasn't able to pay it. And it wasn't until these proceedings in which they magically decided that a 16-year-old was an adult 
right? That always blows my mind. Yeah, they just decided that a 16-year-old was an adult for the purpose of inflicting, you know, a much more terrifying and harsh punishment. And and that was when you, for the first time, you found out that your friends had even said these things. Shante wasn't part of that process, but Antonio was. He came to court and made some statements that literally, like, I'm like, why is he telling these lies? I didn't, I didn't have opportunity to speak with him. I'm sitting there in life, like I say, on the balance of people making false statements. And I really don't know what to do. This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company. AIG is committed to corporate social responsibility and is making a positive difference in the lives of its employees and in the communities where we work and live. In light of the compelling need for pro bono legal assistance and in recognition of AIG's commitment to criminal and social justice reform, the AIG Pro Bono Program provides free legal services and other support to underrepresented communities and individuals. So now you're set to be tried as an adult. I mean, you're a child in a very adult and very real nightmare. It's March 10th, 1995. You were assigned two public defenders from the Montgomery County Public Defender's Office. The state's case really was these three pieces of evidence. The alleged gunshot residue, Antonio's testimony, and Shantae's testimony. What's interesting is Antonio and Shantae actually didn't show up the day they were supposed to testify. They were supposed to come down to court, they were subpoenaed, and they didn't come. So the next day, the police actually go out and they arrest them. And they bring them down to the court and they hold them in jail. And so their their understanding is you can go home once you testify. So the two of them testify against Raymond. And the story that they give is that you know, they went to his house, they got his scooter, they start going down Kilmer Street toward Antonio's home. Mr. Simpson approaches them in his car and he's looking for drugs. And then Shantae and Antonio continue on to Antonio's house, but Raymond goes into the alley with Mr. Simpson. They say they then hear shots and then Raymond comes up to Antonio's house and says, I had to shoot the guy because he gave me fake money. Antonio and Shantae both also testified that they saw Raymond with a gun the day before the shooting. What's interesting also is that Shantae, when he's testifying, he actually initially does not testify to seeing Raymond with a gun or testify to him confessing. He only remembers those facts after the police show him the handwritten statement that they wrote and he signed. Right. And it's hard to remember lies, especially when you weren't even the one that initially wrote them. So... They have these statements from the two kids that would have and should have been his alibi witnesses. By the way, both of them have since recanted on the record, right? But that hasn't really done anything for Raymond thus far. He's still right where he is. But back at trial, the defense did present two witnesses that shed a lot of doubt on the state's case. So there were two people who lived in the neighborhood nearby, John and Patricia Moreland, and the defense called them. And Patricia testified to, she was kind of walking around the neighborhood at this time. She'd gone to her friend's house to get her hair done and then was coming home. And so she testified to seeing Mr. Simpson in his car kind of rolling around the block a few times. Her husband, John, testified that he was in his home. He heard the crash. So he goes outside to check it out. And at that point, he sees the 
gold Buick driven by Andre Wright and Stanley Williams. And to him, it looked like the Buick had potentially been following Mr. Simpson's car. So he sees the Buick come around and, and turn around and park across the street. And what Mr. Moreland says is he actually sees three people come out of the Buick. These three men get out of the gold Buick that they go back and forth between their car and Mr. Simpson's car several times. And then when the police arrive, one of these three men has disappeared. And so now there's only two men left at the scene. Again, we're not saying that these individuals are guilty, but they were not ruled out by GSR testing. At the very least, they should have been more interesting to the authorities than Raymond was to the police at that time. Plus, the Morelands did not mention seeing Raymond come and go from the scene while they had watched these three men. But now, here goes the quote-unquote expert testimony that sounded very official, and this had law enforcement, the prosecutor's office, and everybody believing, or at least putting forth the narrative, that Raymond was the actual guy. So the gunshot residue analyst testified that he found barium and antimony on Raymond's non-dominant hand and that it meant one of those three things, that he either shot a, a firearm, was a victim of a shooting, or handled contaminated ammunition. I mean, I'm sitting there listening to this, like, this dude is lying. Like, there's no way. And at the same time, I, I don't have anything to combat this, you know. All I can depend on is my lawyers at the time. They didn't know the brake pads and working with, you know, vehicles and motor oil and other things like that would be something that would cause these, you know, readings. I mean, the jury is, they're hearing from two children who are saying, my friend did this. They're hearing from the scientific evidence, you know, back in 1995, this sounds like real science. And they're being told it could only be one of these three things. And, and two of those things are inculpatory, like the, the idea that he handled ammunition or fired a gun, both of those things aren't good. And certainly he wasn't a victim of a shooting. So the jury's left with very little to go on, but it's they believe Shantae and Antonio and they believe the science. At that point, did you hold out any hope that the jury was going to get it right? I thought that the jury would see the videotape that Antonio did and know, like I say, that he's being forced to say certain things. I thought that the truth would come out. I really didn't think like I would be sitting here now. I didn't. And the verdict did come back. I was dumbfounded. Two of the jury members cried and said certain things that it's like they were kind of bullied into the verdict themselves. So I was, I was still kind of dumbfounded during the whole process. Like for a couple of years, I literally sat and waited. Like every time, like a door would open, like. I was waiting on them to come get me. It's like they made a mistake. It just hasn't happened. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. 
At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. As we discussed, I was uh, bound over as an adult. And back then, they didn't have uh, juvenile like blocks or anything like that for uh, individuals who were under 18. So I was thrown right into the, 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 the jungle, so to speak, at a Lebanon correctional institution. As a kid, I was preyed upon, you know, uh, sexually harassed by both inmates and guards alike. Definitely was a, a, a uphill battle and still continues to be a battle. Um, it has not been easy. And in the very beginning, it was, man, it was a fight for my life every day. Like it was really, like I said, just trying to maneuver it, stay out of harm's way. One of the things that I've tried to make sure that I've done is educate myself and stay prepared for what these doors do open. Um, I've acquired my electronics degree, my tutorial certification, and I'm also in college now. Um, I've tried to stay busy with education as well as physical uh, activities, working out, things like that. And just staying busy with the job as well as staying active in my own legal process, reading the documents and things like that that my legal team sends me, make sure that I'm abreast of the things that are being done. So Raymond is convicted in 1995. He has a direct appeal um, that's unsuccessful. 
And from that point forward, he's really on his own. And so he's making every effort he can to find an attorney to help him challenge his conviction, which is incredibly difficult. He has no money. He's incarcerated. And he's, by that point, 17 years old. So he and his brothers scrape together a little money and are able to hire an attorney. And this is around 1999. That attorney actually goes out and he gets a recantation from Shante Hunt. So Shante Hunt says, this didn't happen the way I said at trial. The police terrified me. I was a kid and I thought that they were going to charge me with a murder if I didn't implicate Raymond. What really happened is exactly what Raymond said, which is, you know, we were approached by Mr. Simpson. We said, no, we don't have drugs. And then all three of us go to Antonio's house We are all together when we hear the shots. And so he's saying, Raymond could not have done this because he was with me when we heard the shots. My testimony was a lie. So Raymond has that affidavit now, but at this point, he's run out of money. And so this attorney doesn't file it for him because he can no longer afford to pay him. So then Raymond, he's trying to get a new attorney. He's writing probably over the years, hundreds and hundreds of letters. In the next 15 years or so, Raymond works with a number of attorneys. He, every once in a while, is able to scrape together enough money to hire someone. In you know the mid-2000s, he did that. and Somebody filed an unsuccessful procedural motion. He's out there still trying to get Antonio and see if he's willing to recant. But Antonio is really hard to find. He's changed his last name. He's incarcerated for a period of time. So it's not until 2008 that Antonio comes forward and also recants his testimony. Well, I was uh, very fortunate enough to uh, run into a guy who was going home who knew Antonio. And uh, I was also in contact with the uh, Ohio Innocence Project, and they were uh, helping me as well. They were uh, investigating my case. Um, I relayed the information to the Ohio Innocence Project, and they were able to obtain an affidavit of truth from Antonio Johnson Ross. And he says the same thing, which is... I was a scared kid. My testimony was not true. I thought they were going to charge me with this murder. And I didn't come forward sooner because I was scared I would be charged with perjury. So Raymond now has both of these affidavits. And it's really a series of mishaps at that point. He, he's he got one organization that's working for him, but then they lose his file and sort of don't do anything on the case for a while. They then find it and sort of reopen his case and then close it. So he's, you know, he thinks something's going to happen and then it doesn't. They then referred his case to another attorney who basically ignores him, you know, and, and she would later tell us that she handled this worse than any other matter in her career. It really does take a village. Oy. So he's had Shante's affidavit since 1999 and almost 10 years went by before he caught up with Antonio. The clock is ticking on all of this newly discovered evidence and all of these attorneys that Raymond simply doesn't have the means to maintain, this just screws him over even more than the system already has, which is hard to believe or even imagine. But is that accurate? That's definitely most accurate. And I have, I have not been uh, uh, that good at learning law. I'm not an attorney. Don't play one on TV. <laughs> yeah, I hear that. I'm not either, Raymond. A lot of people think I am, but I'm Definitely not a lawyer. I'm not even a college graduate. But anyway, it's not exactly like you had the benefit of having gone to law school. So the nightmare continued. It was literally a nightmare. At the time, I really didn't know what to do. So it was just trying to understand the legal process and really put together something on my own and get it filed myself, which I eventually did. I filed a motion for a new trial. So 2013, Raymond filed his motion. At the time, there was 
essentially an unwritten rule, but a rule that a lot of the courts had adopted that once a person discovers new evidence, they have an obligation to present it to the court within a reasonable period of time. And so when Raymond filed his motion in 2013, because he had had the affidavits for several years at that point and hadn't filed them, which the reason he hadn't filed was because he was thinking he was having all these attorneys who were going to do it for him, who ultimately did not. But the court determined that by the time he did file them in 2013, he was out of time, that like an unreasonable amount of time had passed. And so they denied his motion as untimely. And the term unreasonable seems like a like a conveniently flexible term. But it seems like if a person's freedom is at stake and they're presenting the truth, I mean, any amount of time should be within reason. That's right. There's really not, at that time, a lot of guidance on what is a reasonable period of time. So there's cases where five years is determined to be reasonable and cases where four months is determined to be unreasonable. So it's really hard to judge what will be deemed timely or untimely. I mean, you have these guys, Antonio and Shante, coming forward to their own peril and detriment, admitting to perjury which carries a five to 10 year sentence in Ohio, I believe. And, and yet they're going to go ahead, talking about the authorities, and tell an innocent man, yeah, but you know, nothing to see here. Too bad for you. An unreasonable amount of time has passed. Now, had he also supported those recantations with the evolving science on GSR, or was that not until you all got involved in 2014? When Raymond initially filed his pro se motion, he doesn't know about the gunshot residue evidence. He doesn't have an understanding of this evolving science. So his motion was focused just on these two recantations. We stepped in for the appeal, and we actually were successful on appeal in the sense that we were allowed to go back to the trial court because the trial court had not let Raymond file a reply once the state opposed his motion. So we were sent back down to the trial court to give us the opportunity to reply. And at that point, now he has us as counsel, we asked to amend his initial motion. And so with that amendment, we added in information about gunshot residue. And what had happened in the years since his conviction is that the scientific community had really started to study gunshot residue evidence. And the FBI held a massive symposium in 2005 where they looked at all sorts of studies regarding contamination and alternative sources for these two elements, such as brake pads. And and they came up with a lot of best practices, things that should be done to make the results more reliable. But the big takeaway from the symposium was that really the probative value of gunshot residue is negligible if there's any at all, because it's so transferable. There's so much risk for contamination. The results of a gunshot residue, a positive test result is is truly meaningless. And as a result of that symposium, a lot of labs actually stopped doing gunshot residue testing altogether. So we amended Raymond's motion to include all of that information in addition to Antonio and Shante's recantations. And we also included a lot of information about why it took Raymond so long to present this evidence to the court. And so we went through and we got affidavits from a lot of the attorneys that had represented him. And we included a lot of information about you know what this delay was and what the reason was, was that he was relying on counsel. So we presented all of that to the trial court. His motion was denied again. And again, they ruled that the delay in presenting this new evidence was unreasonable. So at that point, we appealed again, and the appellate court reversed again. And what they said was that the trial court should have had a hearing on Raymond's motion. So we go back to the trial court. At that point, we have a multiple-day evidentiary hearing. And 
the focus of this hearing is actually not on the new evidence. This hearing is entirely focused on whether Raymond filed this evidence within a reasonable period of time. Right. Seemingly based on an arbitrary opinion, not on any concrete metric. So never mind that all of this has to do with these lawyers and Raymond's inability to financially maintain counsel. That's not a good enough reason. So he's denied again. At that point, we appealed again, and this time we lost the appeal. So we appealed to the Ohio Supreme Court, and um, they declined to take jurisdiction over Raymond's case. So at that point, we had lost that issue. What's notable is about two years after that denial in the Ohio Supreme Court, in a different case, the court actually ruled that this reasonable time filing requirement was not anywhere in any rule or statute, and that courts shouldn't be applying it to defendants when they discover new evidence. And that was that was in March of this year, as we're recording, 2022. And typical of our system, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that they will not be reconsidering cases that have already been decided, even if only several months had passed since that ruling. You know, this reminds me of how they sometimes make laws or change laws, but don't change them retroactively to correct all the injustice that has come before, which would seem like a no-brainer, right? They just do it going forward. So it's like, how'd you like to be the last person convicted under an old law that now the government has said is not a correct law? It's not, it's not even a legal sentence anymore, and yet there you, there you stay. It doesn't make any sense. It's, it's one of the most maddening things to me about our system. But anyway, another crazy thing to realize is that you all picked up his case in 2014. And in eight years, we've only resolved the question that the courts didn't want to hear his claims of innocence because of an arbitrary time bar. Yeah, mind you, no court has ever heard the merits of his claims of innocence, which, as you've heard here today, are extremely powerful. And this is the American appellate system in action, unfortunately. They haven't even heard the evidence. They don't even care about the evidence. That's not something they care about. They only cared about, like I say, the fact that it took too long to file. That's right. Due to these procedural barriers and the, the time limitations on filing motions, over these years, no court has ever spent the time to look at these affidavits, to look at the gunshot residue evidence, and to actually determine whether it points to Raymond's innocence. And so we've spent all of this time, all of these resources, all of these years of litigation, really just focusing our energy on this timing question instead of what I think is the much more important question, which is, do we have an innocent man who's been sitting there in prison for the last 27 years? All you need is really two brain cells to rub together, and you could see this, right? So where do we go from here? What we're working on right now is we we filed an application for DNA testing last year in the trial court, and there were three shell casings found at the scene, two in Mr. Simpson's car, one just outside of the driver's side door. And so we asked for touch DNA testing on those shell casings. If that information came back and excluded Raymond as the source of the DNA on those shell casings, or even a step further, pointed to a known individual as the source of the DNA, when you couple that information with Antonio and Shante's recantations and what we now know about gunshot residue, it'd be very compelling evidence of Raymond's innocence. And so we've asked for that DNA testing. Our application was denied. And so what we're doing right now is we're appealing that denial. The other thing is that Raymond is up for parole. 
early next year. And he's been up for parole multiple times. He's always maintained his innocence before the parole board, and he's always been denied or continued for several more years. But our hope is that, you know, now that he's done 27 years in prison, that he will be released on parole and can continue fighting for his innocence uh, from the outside. Yeah. And unfortunately, maddeningly, parole boards almost always demand an admission of guilt, which Raymond, of course, has not done, even though he's been eligible now for almost 10 years since 2013, and he has no plan of changing that. And as an innocent man, neither he nor any other innocent person should have this crazy condition, right, to admit guilt to a crime they didn't commit. Are there any other avenues other than where you found denial so far? The other notable thing right now in Ohio is that over the last couple of years, the Ohio Supreme Court convened a task force to study wrongful convictions and post-conviction review. And they were looking at a lot of different factors. How do we prevent wrongful convictions? You know, How do we better train police, attorneys, prosecutors? But one big aspect of the task force was how do we change our court rules and laws to ensure that there is a pathway to relief for innocent people people like Raymond who have the evidence, but they're running into procedural barriers, running into timelines. And the result of that task force's work were several recommendations to amend court rules and to amend legislation. And so one of the big things that we're hoping will happen in the near future is that those recommendations are adopted so that people like Raymond have options to litigate their case and to not have what happened to him occur, which is that you have this evidence but no one's ever actually looked at it. So we're glad that someone really has Raymond's back here as he continues his fight. Is there anything our audience can do to help? Yeah, I like the audience to support me as much as possible. Anything that you see on our website, on the Free Raymond One website, support our petitions, sign them. Anything that they can do to push the judges to do the right thing and to let my case process through, to not just let it sit because I missed a filing deadline. I actually have proof of my innocence. I shouldn't be sitting here. That's what the world should be doing, supporting me. Well, we're going to have the action steps linked in the bio. So please, whatever you're doing right now, unless you're driving, stop and scroll down, sign the petition, check out his site to stay up on developments in the case, and let's keep the pressure on. And that brings us now to my favorite part of the show, where, first of all, I thank you all for joining us and Raymond, for sharing your story. And now I'm just going to turn my microphone off, kick back in my chair, and just listen to anything you feel is left to be said. Let's kick it off with Joanna. And Raymond, you take us off into the sunset, please. Well, thank you very much for for having me and Raymond here and, and for telling his story. I think we're at a really critical moment where the public is really paying attention to wrongful convictions. You know, they're really aware that it happens and I think motivated to do what they can to prevent them from occurring. And a lot of these conversations center around preventing wrongful convictions, which is absolutely critical. You know, how do we reform eyewitness identification procedures? How do we address false confessions, Brady violations, misconduct? There's another part of this story, though, which is that after somebody is wrongfully convicted, we have this whole process that they have to follow to try to get relief. And the rules that are in place and the procedures that they have to follow often prevent them from having their cases heard and make it incredibly difficult for an innocent person to get relief. And so I encourage people to pay attention to that aspect of wrongful convictions. 
And when you think about those rules and those laws that govern these cases, think about the actors who control those, the prosecutors, the local judges, the state legislators. Those are the people who have the power to create pathways to relief for people like Raymond Warren, particularly here in Ohio, as we are grappling with those issues right now through the Supreme Court Task Force on Wrongful Convictions. And our hope is that some of the reforms that we're recommended by that task force are enacted so that people like Raymond can have their freedom restored one day. First off, I want to thank you, Jesse Flaw, for allowing me to do this interview. Second, I want the world to know that I'm in here for something I didn't do. This could happen to any of you or any of your children. Like I said, I was a child when this happened. And not hearing my evidence and hearing the proof of my innocence, those are missed the filing deadline. I need your help. And right now, the justice system has their knee on my neck. I'm dying behind these walls for something I didn't do. So anybody that's listening to this, support me. I'm not just signing petitions, but showing up at those courtrooms and showing up at the places I need your help. Anybody that does support me and get out there and help me, I want to thank you right now. And I want this, you know, this nightmare to end. There's a lot of things in life, like I said, I haven't got to experience yet. I've been here, like you said, I was 16 years old. There's people in here in this room alone that watched me grow up. That sucks. God, it sucks. I just want this to be over with. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph, Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on I'm this. <laughs> People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in exactly. to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, right. which is different than empathy. Yeah. Right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.